welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We have a special year-end episode for you, holiday episode, if you will. Uh, we have brought back Andy Liu um, hey. How's it to going? reprise the year and to talk a little bit about parenthood. If For those who don't know, Andy now has two children, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I am now T-minus eight days from also joining the two-kid club, right? <laughs> and so... We thought that that would be a nice holiday, family, good feeling, vibes type of topic, even though I'm sure that, you know, maybe it's like exhausting to even think about having two children, but whatever. I mean, people have had more than two kids for thousands of years. I and still have zero time, children. Jamie <laughs> still has zero children. <laughs> He's bringing down the average. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I don't know. You know, people are always like, I've gotten a lot. Did you get this, Andy? We can talk about this in a second here, but you know, um, I'll, I'll shelve my question for a second, but, um, because I am going on paternity leave, we're going to have, I don't know, maybe like a few weeks of disruption to the show. I think Tammy is going to do some interviews on her own. Is that right, Tammy? I think maybe. Yeah. And, um, (laughs) but we're going to keep too tired too. We're going to keep the train rolling, you know? Because um, we are cognizant and very appreciative of the support that we get for the show today. I don't know. This past week, Slate named this show one of yeah. the top Chab podcast of the year, which was exciting for us. Yay. You know, yeah, yeah, that was so sweet. What is a Chad podcast as opposed to every other podcast? What do you mean? Right. Like all the other po- like it's like a non-narrative podcast. It's not like produced, right. like you know, yeah. it's like chatty. Does anyone? I don't know. I don't listen to the produced ones. Like, yeah, I don't either. Ever. Oh, you don't? I like, like maybe that. maybe either. this American Life because it's like the grandfathered in as a radio show. Oh, that's true. I listen to This American Life. I don't actually. listen to This yeah. American Life, but there's a bunch of other ones that I like that are like narrated are like, with the yeah, plot. or like yeah, or even if it doesn't have a plot, kind of like more reported. So like NPR. Oh yeah. Or or like more like structured interviews as well. I mean, I guess that's sort of a chat cast, but I think ours is more chattier <laughs> than an interview show. Right. Yeah, ours is more in the Bill Simmons vein, you know, yeah. more like Chapo or something like that. Totally. Whereas there are ones that are kind of chatty but are very produced, <laughs> and then yeah. there, you know, those are the ones like I don't know, like Ezra's podcast at the times, or actually right. most of the times is podcasts, you know. Yeah. Um, so and then like, there's ones that are just full on like narrative, true crime, usually type right. of stuff. And those yeah. are the ones that sometimes I struggle with, you know, um, cause they're like books on tape. Yeah. I would rather listen to a book on tape, I guess is right. always my conclusion, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I do a lot, but, um, thank you to slate. This is the second time we've been on a year end list, which means yeah, that for this podcast, nice. I've now been much more celebrated than for any of my other work. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Tammy? Have you made- count your stars, Jay? <laughs> yeah, Tammy, I think you, that's right. Have you made a? Well. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's like, like, oh, that essay Tammy wrote, but they're like, <laughs> yeah, oh, that stupid yeah. stuff she says to Jay every week. <laughs> Tammy definitely should make a top ten list of most, of, <laughs> yeah, right. of most intense cancellations of 2022 though, <laughs> because of her K-pop cancellation. The K-pop one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah everyone was like, New Yorker. Apologize, Tammy Kim. Apologize. That was that's the most famous I've ever been. 
I know you were so famous. (laughs) I feel like we were like, you were like one day away from my mom calling me, you know, and asking me if you were okay. (laughs) That's how bad the cancellation got. Someone should definitely make that list the top 10 cancellations. I think Tammy's top five. I can't think of, I honestly can't think of somebody who generated more posts than Tammy, you know? I mean, it was like every eight seconds for a while. It was, it was a good thing I survived. Yeah. Yeah. What was the most creative or the most memorable? There was like no crazy creativity. Emails? Oh yeah, yeah. We got a lot of copy and pasted. They emailed me. Yeah. That's the craziest <laughs> they part. Did? Just like, yeah, oh yeah. They're oh, like, oh, I see that you're doing a podcast with Tammy Kemp. Oh my god, you know, I did not. Would know you that. consider forcing her to apologize? <laughs> and I just like, guys, I don't even know. I barely, I don't know what any of these things you're talking about are. You know, I'm 42 oh, year old Kilpo living in Berkeley. I don't listen to K-pop. <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? Just leave me alone. Stop being crazy. Those are some dark days. Okay, Tammy. Well, okay. So in addition to uh, being (laughs) on Slate's number you know top chat cast you are you you do you get a, a unofficial ranking in the most canceled of 2022 thank you online. i'm honored <laughs> um we thank you slate it does feel great and andy how was um, you? yeah how was london you just got back right yeah it was weird it was like a three-day trip um oh wow so fast yeah i mean it was i don't know like philly to london is actually not that far it's like philly to california and back yeah um but it sounds I don't know. Like nobody there wears masks, but I kind of knew that going in. People kind of took off their masks a long time. Do people in Philadelphia wear masks? Yeah, I don't think anyone in New York is wearing them either. Uh, doc hospitals, that kind Uh-oh, of thing. Childcare, they yeah. do. Okay, sure. I've been taking it off recently, but I think I need to put it back on. I think the rates are spiking again. I don't know. Yeah, it's just. Were so- you presenting on your work in London? Yeah, uh, a few very nice. Uh, Faculty at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies. I also <laughs> like the fact that they kept Oriental totally. in, in their title and they didn't succumb to cancellation. Um, <laughs> I guess the coolest... Are the standards different in Europe? Like, can you say Oriental in Europe mm, and not get You know what's interesting? If you go to the UK and you say Asian, they actually mean South Asian. Yeah, right? that's, what, that's yeah. what I was that's thinking. Like BBC so Asia is like a bunch of like, you know, Desi media, not right. yeah. East Asian American. Right. Um. I did in a bookshop. I ran into Slavoj Žižek. I didn't run into him. I saw him from afar. Uh, <laughs> and that dude was like, you know, famous theorist guy. That's so And funny. I had the, I saw him once before and I was like, you know what? It's like my only chance to ever do this. So I actually went up to him and I said like, hi, thank you, blah, blah, blah. And thank he was very nice. What? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I like, I read his books and the, two, you know, his books were like kind of cool. Thank you for debating Jordan <laughs> Peterson. <laughs> thank you for writing debate cards. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, and he was like, he was nice about it. Then, he, but very clearly, he like hated it. Like, he, like this is another fan of mine, and uh, <laughs> gave me this like very nice, but you know, very clear sign to like get out, get out of the space. Um, wow, that was my. That's great. But that was my like. Uh, that's your celebrity sighting. I was like on thirty six yeah. hours without sleep. I was like, where am I? I'm in London now. Is <laughs> that Zizek? What'd you say? Did you say hi, hi Zizek? Yeah. How's it going? Hi, hi, hi no, I, I was just like, you know, I thank you for your, your work, work and all that stuff. And uh, uh, he was like humble. Like, oh, no, no. Like, like you must be kidding or something. You know, one of those like ways of saying, being trying to be humble. And then he started asking me about pop culture, like movies he'd watched. Because he always writes about movies. Yeah. 
and I don't watch movies or know anything about <laughs> pop culture. So it was actually like this. <laughs> nothing oh, in common. Oh, shit, I have nothing to contribute to this <laughs> yeah. conversation. Did he, say, did he say, you know nothing. You clearly know nothing <laughs> of my work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what have you actually read? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Like Marshall McLuhan, yeah. Uh, um, so that was, yeah, that was my, uh, that was kind of cool, but, you know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, London's cool. They're like getting into burritos recently. Like that's, I feel like they're like five or 10 years, you know, after the fact with U.S. food culture. Like it's like the Chipotle wave has hit um, a lot of East Asian food. Like The things you're pointing stuff. out about London are so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, they're also like incredibly <laughs> not so appealing. Strange. I can't think of anything I'd rather want to eat less than a burrito. No, I know. I, did, I, I didn't try any of that stuff. I was just, yeah, I was just kind of observing there. like the sort of. No, there is not really good food. There, there. is really yeah. good food there. The food culture is really improved there. The good food is sufficient. I mean, I had sushi and I was like assuming it would be good there oh. because it's like, you know, I don't global financial capital. It wasn't very good. No. Then I had fish and chips and <laughs> I said I should have just had fish and chips the whole time. Um, so, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about London. I've, I've been there uh, twice, I think, but once when I was a kid. And the second time I went there, I was like following this guy who was playing poker for hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And so I just ate with nice. him, which was like bizarre. What is, yeah, what does he eat? <laughs> well, it was in this casino called Les Ambedassers or something like that. That was in a very wealthy part of uh, London. And so we would go in and there would be like some guy who looked vaguely like Saudi Prince or something betting. Mm-hmm. tens of thousands of pounds on some sort of card baccarat or something amazing but upstairs they had a card room and he would be play he played like a few other people for these huge stakes and for food they would march out four chefs of different i'm not oh kidding gosh. about this of different races from different ethnicities and you could just pick the one to no cook meal are you serious of the casino. yeah That's it was amazing awesome. <laughs> what were the ethnicities <laughs> Oh, there was like a South Asian dude. There was like, like a, a Vietnamese TV show. dude. That's so I think funny. There was a guy from um, the Middle East, and then like you know, like some. Uh, I think the shit, like maybe like Jamaican immigrant or something like that, who was you know. And then that was about it. And all the food was good. I tried wow. three of the four ethnicities. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it the was one super, rejected guy. It was super weird. Yeah, they, I mean, it was cool. They let me like sit in, you know, as a journalist or whatever. But yeah, that's the. So I don't actually know anything about London. Oh my god, culture, I love. I that. just assume it's bad. All right, so we want to talk about parenting. As we said, Andy has how's the second kid, Andy. Um, this week not great, but overall good. Um, he's been sick, but uh. Everything, I mean, everything is fine. And then one kid gets sick and everything got, is thrown out of, you know, into imbalance, out of balance. Um, but overall, it's good. Um, started dating. Is it a recently. lot more work? Yeah, it's a lot of, um, I guess it's like, it's like extensive work, which is to say it's not novel, new. It's mm-hmm. like you, can, you can, you know how to do everything from the first kid for the most part. Yeah. It's been a while since you changed a diaper, but, you know, you can figure it out. Uh, but then it's just that plus the first kid and you know so our our first was four years old when the second we had our second and that's an age where it'd been like two years since we felt like all right we're on top of this we're in control we have our lives back we have our (laughs) evenings back to watch tv or do work or whatever we want and then you know that just gets thrown out the window and you go back to square one in a sense but um it's not that surprising and you know and 
when it gets like a sniffle, you don't freak out. You don't um, yeah. like with the first, we just went to the hospital all the time for like anything like, oh, like they fell mm-hmm. a little bit. Maybe uh, they have a concussion, yeah. you know, and now we're like, eh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's fine. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot it's, of that. Yeah. I mean, I, my thought about it is just that like people have had more than two kids forever, you know? Sure. And they used to have many more kids. <laughs> and way back in the day, you'd have like nine and two <laughs> so would be, awful. you would die of scarlet fever or whatever, like, like in little women or something. But, you know, people have had a lot of kids and I feel like everybody's giving me this like, hey, two is going to be really bad. I'm like, it's probably going to be more work, but I don't know. Like, it seems like you can just rely on the millennia of people have had more than two kids type of thing. Well, I would say, especially with kid two, but even with kid one, right? The thing that hits you is why people always lived in like the same house as their parents and grandparents Yeah, for millennia, Right. right? And like my parents basically, I don't want to say they didn't raise me, right? But during the day, it was like my grandma watched me or like mm-hmm. the person they hired to help out while my parents went to work. Um, and and they were, you know, immigrants at the time. I'm sure if they had stayed back in Taiwan, they would have had 50 people, you know, could have, who could have helped out and watched the kid. So the thing that uh, probably exacerbates it is like the lack of, you know, family support or like... Yeah. Uh, you know, free public childcare, you know, isolation of contemporary give. life. Yeah. yeah. So it does. Do you, how did you guys prepare your, like your kid, the first kids? What kind of talk did you have with your guys' first kids? Yeah. I, I don't know. Is Frankie excited? Jay, no, no, <laughs> really? <laughs> no, but she's going to get used to it. It'll be fine. So it wasn't a situation where she was asking for a brother or sister. Oh no, definitely not. She's <laughs> she not, likes being she's very time. uninterested in it, but you know, I think that she'll just be uninterested for about a, you know, for a bit and then it'll yeah. be fine. But I don't see that there's going to like, I like, it's fine. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I have a very like, everything's fine attitude until it's not, but most things are fine type of stuff about, child rearing um, but yes let's uh you wanted to talk about this specifically not just to muse about our own lives but to talk about something that you had brought up which was that you know there is this modern parenting right and that there mm-hmm. are parenting fads and that there are new ways to think about parenting all the time and that um parenting i think in a lot of ways is seen as being like waves of different ideologies that are sort of brought on by like one very powerful person, like whether it's Dr. Spock or, you know, I don't know who the new person is, maybe like Emily Oster or something like that. Like not even kidding, (laughs) right? Like like that's somebody who's very powerful now, at least in terms of this and that all of the parenting is generally aimed at one demographic, right? Like the sort of trends in parenting or what we talk about when we talk about (laughs) I did the Raymond Carver thing what we talk about when we talk about like uh like parenting (laughs) trends it's generally like a middle class white type of parenting idea right like those are that's the market for it and all of this was written about very convincingly and very beautifully in Barbara Ehrenreich's fear uh fear of falling right which is uh Mm -hmm. I don't know, one of my favorite books. I think of her books, it's my favorite, you know, just because it's so expansive and it's so clear-eyed. So, Andy, why did you want to talk about all of this? Yeah, well, you know, the broader theme was we were talking about something from this past year. Uh, and to be honest, my head has been in the sand since the second kid. In fact, I spent a lot of the second half of the year uh, listening to books, you know, in lieu of reading books, like while I'm mm-hmm. burping the kid. 
And so this is one of the books I listened to, um, especially, or not especially, like after she had passed away, I was like digging around, you know, like, oh, like her writing is good. It'd probably be a good yeah. listen on tape. And uh, I forget how I stumbled onto this book in particular, um, but, you know, I listened to it and it was just like real, really revelatory. Um, you know, mm. the PMC concept, professional managerial class or professional middle class, you know, gets tossed around a lot. Um and she wrote an essay where she kind of coined it in the 70s. And people probably will see that essay cited, but this is the book. So that that, that essay was in the 70s. This is the book in 1989 that really expands on the idea. And right. she defines it early on in the book and goes through it. And it was just like one of those moments where you're reading something and like, I don't know what the matter, light bulb goes off or like pieces of the puzzle fall into place, you know, like mm-hmm. this is stuff that you intuitively have known your entire life, but no one had really put it into words for you. So the child raising section is part of like this broader um, thing she talks about, which is like this idea of a professional middle class. The basic definition that was like so useful for me, and you know, who knows if it's that precise or how scientific it is, but that, you know, she's basically referring to a group of people who, unlike the elite of like a feudal society who have land, right? The thing that this group has is education mm-hmm. as their basic capital, um, which is not mutually exclusive with actually having capital, like with actually like having a, a piece of land or a business. Um, and that a, a class organized around having education manifests itself in all sorts of weird ways. Like it doesn't get to act like the aristocrats who actually can eat, you know, caviar and drink champagne every meal. Um, but so, the, but they have to differentiate themselves from like the working class right. um, or the less educated, and so education becomes everything for this class. And you know, I should say like we're talking about basically our class and probably the yeah. class of a lot of our listeners as well. Um, and it's like fun to exoticize your own class because you take so much for granted that you never think about yourself as like this particular class that's exotic and different but distinct from the other classes. And so that, but so in terms of child raising in particular, the contradiction is this, right? That, you know, for us, um, the thing, I mean, you know, to, to varying degrees, right? If education is like this, uh, you know, like pot, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, this thing we strive for for 20, 30 years to establish ourselves. Uh, if you're, so like the thing we have is like our degrees, right? Now, if you are, you know, the king of England and you have a kid, you can just give them, you know, the land you own. The, the kid doesn't have to work for it. For people whose entire status is based on their education, you can't give your college degrees to your kid. You can't even give your like selective high school admission your, to your kid. Like they in a way have to like start over. But the whole premise of this professional middle class is that they've created all these barriers to entry. Uh, to get into it. So for instance, medicine, you have to go through all this licensing. You can't just have any random right. person be a doctor. To be a professor, you have to like get a PhD. You have to like, you know, you have to do all this um, kind of gatekeeping, gate entering sort of ritual pomp and circumstance. And so on the one hand, the survival of this class depends upon exclusion. On the other hand, that exclusion is also going to make it really hard to reproduce for your own kids. And this leads to the fear of falling, right? The real fear that she talks about, this fear of anxiety that, and, you know, not to like totally divert the conversation away, but it does kind of, it just kind of struck me as like really 
explaining a lot of the things that would come up, for instance, in like Amy Schwab's book about like going soft in the first generation, the second, the third generation, and the fear that, you know, that there would be like the generational decline. It's like, well, Aaron Reich isn't talking about race or migration or really any groups. She's just talking about like mostly middle-class white people. But I feel like a lot of the class anxieties she was talking about um, probably could map onto or be accentuated by the experience of like an immigrant middle-class um, or a lot of anxieties that get attributed to being an immigrant as opposed to the class, you know, of, of a particular. Right, but, but, do you that's, just... but that's not right. Oh, go ahead, Tammy. Well, I was just going to say, but do you guys yeah. just want to clarify a little bit? Because I don't think, I mean, it's not as though this, the social capital that we have through our education and through our professionalization in our industries is not a commodity that we can also, to some yeah. extent, pass on to our kids. I mean, sure, we can't like specifically get them past whatever right. the MCAT and through their boards and all that stuff, but right. the education, all of the, the milieu that we raise them in, like also yeah. like our, as like legacy admits, like there are things that right. we are giving them. So do you want to just clarify yeah. the ways in which this is not actually a thing that we can just give them? Cause it seems like it is actually in yeah. a lot of ways. Well, part like, so part of the reason we have all these parenting books is because, you know, when you, and this is like, you know, became like, something I became much more aware of as we like car kids get towards education, uh, the, the, the age of going to school and so on is that anxiety. Like, unless we give our kids, you know, unless we like look for private schools, look for tutors, look for all that stuff. Like there's no guarantee that they are going to, um, you know, get high test scores and go to the same schools. Like obviously there is class reproduction, right? I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. Um, but in a lot of ways, it, a lot of the it does. There's also a lot of anxiety around it, and that's probably I'm assuming not this. There's probably anxiety for kings and lords and emperors, right? But it's probably like a little bit <laughs> less anxious than for our class because they're like, well, there's only one king, you know. So, uh, you know, and the at the highest echelons of our class, I'm sure there's less anxiety because like you know, we're, well, you know, push comes I to think... shove, you know, Hunter Biden can always, you know, or Chelsea Clinton. Well, can it's always... also what not totally rational. Right? Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that what her, I thought that yeah. from reading that book, uh, my sense was that what she was arguing was that this anxiety exists, right. And that it is sort of the animating force for how people think about the family in general, right. Mm -hmm. That, um, that like she, writes about like Archie Bunker, for example, right? That um, there is an archetype of the type of family that you don't want to be, right? That you want to separate yourself right. from, which is generally like kind of uncouth and working class. Mm -hmm. And that the parenting industry is about, in a lot of ways, trying to figure out how to differentiate. Like you said, it's right. about trying to differentiate yourself from that, right? It's right. to try and figure out what the middle class is through parenting decisions and sort of grafting all of your ideas onto your children. And that um, that leads to a profound anxiety. Malcolm Harris wrote a book about this, right? And right. it's sort of an update on this. Um, right. And uh, it's about like extreme competition amongst children. I see it myself, uh, I will say, you know, but I'm, I think I'm much more in Tammy's camp with this, right? Which is just that I have a lot of, I have a lot of faith that the class will just reproduce <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I, less I, and so you do these like types of calculations <laughs> when you think about schooling or something like that, right? My child goes to a public school here, but some of my friends send their kids to private school. And if you have an honest conversation with some of the parents who I trust who send their kids to private school, their argument is not really that they think their child will get a better education at the 
private school. Their argument is that they understand how the world works because all these people have gone to elite schools, right? Right. Like they are like, some of them have gone to the most elite schools in that are possible. Totally. And they, what they see is that they, many of them are immigrants. A lot of my friends are immigrants. Like they saw that they had to work their ass off to get to that place. And they saw a bunch of private school kids who basically just waltzed in the place. Right. Totally. And so how could you not let your kid get the waltz in option, you know, it's like giving them a little buffer almost. Yeah. Right. Now that decision, I think in some ways, like you can say that that's monstrous, but that is the type of decision that 99% of parents will make. Right. Um, and that they'll say, this is reality. This is how things work. Now, the reality is that like things are so hyper competitive now that, you know, being at one of these schools might not even help, but I, you know, before we did our live event, I went and I talked at a very elite Manhattan private school and like those kids are probably going to be fine you know yeah. but that's like the <laughs> elite of the those are some of the those are kids are some of the richest people like in the world you know and um you know like that that is different but those kids are also super anxious and their parents are even sure, more anxious right. than probably right. you know the average berkeley parent right and so like the anxiety i think cuts across there but i do think that like at least from my perspective, like, you know, the way that people make decisions is literally like that, that is a differentiator when the people are deciding to send their kid to private school instead of Berkeley public schools, which are very good schools. They're saying my child needs like a class differentiator between like me and you, you know? And my response in my own head is always like, well, you know, the class differentiator between me and you, like for our kids, it's just going to be that I'm actually me, you know, <laughs> like, like I can do a lot of things for my kids, you know, like because of like whatever cultural capital. And so they'll be fine. Now, if I didn't have that, would I think differently? Like maybe, but like, those are the type, like those are yeah. type, that's the type of insane headspace that parents get into. Yeah. Totally. And like, that's what she's like, I think is critiquing, which is that it's all built on like uh general, like you have to basically cut yourself off at the knees and say anything below. I, this is a terrible analogy. I don't know where it's going, but like basically just say like, <laughs> like whoever is behind me in line, <laughs> no, like the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. person who is directly behind me in line, that's where I'm cutting off the yeah. class distinction. I'm just going to create micro, micro, micro class distinctions. And you see that, I don't know, you even see it on Twitter among like a lot of people on the left where they like argue about who's more privileged and stuff like that. And then you look up their bio and like, bro, you grew up in like Greenwich, Connecticut and you're like <laughs> making fun of like what this person's dad does. Like, shut the fuck up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like this is, you're like you're making crazy distinctions right. here. So like, I don't know. I think it's, the, that sort of thing is very natural. And in parenting is just ex- hyper, hyper accelerated. Yeah, I know. And like the words, the phrase she uses is, I don't know, these steps of education have a screening out function, right? Like to, and I, all I'm saying is like, you're saying it's natural. It is natural in our class, right? But as opposed, if you're a peasant, there's no anxiety. It's like, well, I'm, I'm a peasant, you're a peasant. If you're a lord, right? There's no anxiety. Well, right, but we don't live anxieties. in a. I don't know. We don't they live have in anxiety. A, yeah. we don't live <laughs> in a world of middle class people. <laughs> we don't live in a world of peasants and lords, right? And I think one of the one of the additions that Malcolm's book did, which I found to be very interesting, is that like he talks a lot about like working class families and their anxieties about their children's education, yeah. and they find he finds that you know the, their sense of competition for their own kids is even is much more fierce, which you would yeah. expect, right? And so. Like, I do think that the peasants of today, right, like to use a very, uh, you know, if we're going to use that analogy, the people who would be considered peasants, the people who like a lot of our, you know, Asian brothers and sisters say they don't care about education. Like, you know, 
they do care about education, you know, they like, they do try and have their kids compete, right? Like it's not, they do feel a great deal of anxiety. And so I don't know. I think that that's sort of the change between when Aaron Reich wrote her book and now, which is that like, there's so much more competition everywhere and so much more anxiety everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I forget where I read this, but, um, you know, you just like, it's all a blur, but I think someone pointed out like the, the idea that parenting is as a verb, you know, like how do you parent? What is a parent like parenting guidebooks? Wasn't it like a thing until the seventies or the eighties? And that is, and that is kind of the moment that she's pointing out. Like there was the, the, or, you know, you were talking about earlier, the whole industry around this stuff. Well, Spock really emerges. was kind of, yeah. Yeah, who is Sp- the takeoff I, uh, point, I right? I don't know. We I came across Doctor Spock in the text. I was like, "Who is this? Is he famous?" Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Yeah, he is. Really yeah, he's Godfather. like the kind of foundational, okay, guy in that. I think in the development of what you're talking about. Did he inspire the sort of as an industry character, Spock? Or no. I don't think so. No. <laughs> he's like common Unrelated. Yeah, unrelated. Yeah, I think yeah. it's unrelated. Um, well, Andy, yeah, you shouldn't know. feel anxiety. Your kids will be fine. They'll be more than fine. They're already more than fine. <laughs> well, Tammy, no kids weighs in. I know. Yeah, I know things. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. know. You things. actually have like the best perspective out of everyone because <laughs> like you're not, you know, you're not in the, you're not sitting there looking at like six identical schools and being like, what do I do? I don't worry <laughs> about your guys' kids because you guys are smart and well-resourced yeah i'm not every advantage i don't yeah right. i mean that's how i feel <laughs> i don't know I but get, i get it and I, I think like aaron reich is useful because she's she's being you know she it's a descriptive account of like what middle class and professional people like us are thinking about and going through and desiring but then she's also trying to make like a, nor- a normative argument and a critique about that like yeah but right. this is also absurd in some ways she and is. we need to get outside that and we need to get outside of ourselves also in order to build alliances yeah. with people who are poor and working class and what does that look like you know it For means sure. like putting some of this stuff in context right there was a i don't know like a minor social media controversy um about the legacy of what she was saying in a lot of the stuff where people uh, were saying like, well, the whole point of the PMC category was to like negate the like negate yourself to say that like, you know, like, oh. like Jay has said like, you know, we should be class traders and we should you know like stop sending our kids to private school and all that, which is totally fine. Like, I don't want to send my kid to private school, but others were saying like and pointing out interviews where she would say like, no, like that's not what I was trying to say at all. Like, I am a member of the PS- TMC. She had a PhD in like biology yeah. or chemistry or something, um, but right. it is kind of ambiguous what she meant in terms of like. You know, she's not trying to say we should negate who we are or pretend we're something we're not. I don't think so at all. Right. But we have to kind of work through that. But of course, what it actually means is very ambiguous or open-ended. And maybe that's kind of like the legacy of of this work is just kind of it's a first step um, and just being honest, Mm -hmm. kind of an honest self-accounting or honest self-reflection on some of this stuff. I, it seems like later on in her life too, she was trying to like it, to Andy's point about like how do we understand what this means, like you know in the in the world, that she was interested in the ways in which the white collar and professional precarity, or at least per- perceived precarity, could lead us in directions of solidarity with other groups of workers, right, and other class formations. And I think like 
that is like, it is a continuing challenge, but I really think there is opportunity there. And I think we see yeah. that in some of the labor campaigns of recent decades, you know, that it's not, it's like not a coincidence, right? That, I mean, we've talked about this before ad nauseum, but grad students and whatever yeah. white, different kinds of white collar workers are getting into sort of what were traditionally sort of blue collar, like organizing forms. Yeah. Oh, yeah that to it, me is all kind of related to her work. That's, that's Gabe Winnott's kind of intervention. Last totally. Year, and right? I think he's right. Yeah. On that. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about all this stuff that's happening? You know, the UC today system? the art, the no, well today the all the Art Institute of Chicago, they all the all the students or all the workers there decided to unionize. I think all the non tenure track. Oh wow, people! You had the thing at the new school. The new school was yeah, totally. that was a big success. Is, yeah, those are small, but those are small institutions. Obviously, the big story is the UC system, which is like forty four thousand people. Right. I think at last, at least from what I'm hearing right now, basically, you know, the postdocs already settled, um, yeah. which is fine. It's a small number. And also, like, they're not particularly incentivized, given that some of them are only there for a year. Right. Yeah. And they also get paid kind of a lot. Right. Um, but the grad school workers are still there. The UCs have offered, you know, like, it's not like what the UCs are offering is not terrible like it's not insulting right like it's like 25 percent, i think for grad student or 41 percent across the board over a period of time for grad student researchers and then for instructors it's like 22 percent or something like that which is like i mean i don't know like it's not but like given that the floor is so low yeah. like and given that the cost of like actually being right. able to live is like still above that like it's hard you know yeah. like if it's just pure numbers or like you guys are turning down like 41 percent raise for gsrs like that's crazy you know but then you're just like wait it just goes from here to here you're still broke right you know? i know um, so like, crazy um what do you what do you think about all this as an academic we haven't talked to you since uh, you know I mean, about it uh, to me it's always been this abstract thing because i'm not I'm a faculty member that, and I think for whatever reason, private university faculty and LRB decisions have always like said, you're not allowed to unionize and all that. There was a case. Yeah. yeah, But like in spirit, of course, I support it all. And I think, you know. But you used to be a grad student. Yeah. Were you poor as a grad student? Yeah. What did you get paid? I probably, you know, rationalized it as self-exploitation. That was beginning to happen at Columbia. (laughs) It Um, was when you were there. Yeah. And I was like supportive of it, but I was on my way out. I think it was an on on and off wave. NYU was happening a lot, and I supported that, of course. And my friends were involved in that. Um, it is kind of weird, though, because um, I mean, the way a lot of these schools have reacted, especially the Ivy Leagues, basically to give people incredibly cushy experiences as grad students, um, like the and I guess this is like proof that it works, right? Like even if unionization hasn't been recognized by a lot of these fancy schools, like the stipend is like much higher than it used to be and there's a lot of course reductions in terms of work yeah and, all that. and it is yeah i mean i don't want to like name names but there's some like professors i know at these ivy leagues who have you know made the case against unionization and it's just like uh oh they're just yeah. revealing themselves as like horrible people you know um talking about how this is definitely a, this is a, this is <laughs> oh because it doesn't affect their students yeah well, they're yeah, just like, but, I, I think a student is a scholar. They're not a worker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they I've just heard, refuse to see listen, the labor part. My email inbox is filled with UC professors I can making that argument to me. Yeah. And really? I'm just like, what do you want me to say, man? Like, you know, like, uh, they're like, well, I you wonder know, if it's get- a generational thing where in 20, 30 years, it'll be gone. It's absolutely, well, it's, a, it's absolutely a generational thing where the older professors don't understand, you know? Right, right. And like, there's a part of it where I like, 
the argument that basically like, oh, well, you know, like this is supposed to be an apprenticeship. This is how it always is. And the system doesn't work without it. Like, sure, you know, but the system is bad. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, what is right. The, right. What's so, the like, next step of that argument? So then they're yeah. saying like, I, I had this somebody write into me and um, he was professor somewhere in the UC system. And he was like, well, this means the end of like the current way of doing uh, higher education. I was like, yeah, I think that like, that's, kind of, that's kind of what they're after, <laughs> you know? Were they in the uh, <laughs> and, sciences or what field were they no, in? No, 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 no. The science people I've talked to are mostly like kind of like gently eye rolling, but are generally believe, also generally believe that the students deserve better yeah. pay, you know, that's so where that they I can live. But they're just kind of like, well, I don't know. Like, you know, like they're some of these slogans and some of these things they're saying are a little wild, you know, <sighs> but they should get a they should get a race. Like that's basically the standard from the people that I've spoken to. Mm -hmm. Some people are a little bit angrier than that, but like I haven't heard one person say they don't deserve a raise. Hmm. How about that? Right. Yeah. So like, that's good. Right. Because like, it's so obvious that they do. Yeah. But um, to address that person's question, like, I don't really, what would it even look like if, you know, it, what is like the new thing that people like, what's a new era if this is like, quote unquote, the end of, the system of the current system like it's somewhat hard to imagine right like i don't know andy like you have more experience in this than me and tammy uh like what would it what would it what could it even look like um honestly i don't i don't really know either especially from the humanities perspective it's like yeah just get better working conditions and more representation um uh to like you know i guess it would, it would also be like if you have uh, particular complaints like harassment or uh, relationships with with academic faculty, the union could like be an advocate for you instead of kind of going one on one against administration. That so that would be important. Right. Um, but like I was, the, I was asking the question about the sciences before because I feel like that would be the arena where it's most obvious where academic labor would be exploited. Yeah, uh, but they also like, are the yeah, by the far the least piece. interested in it because yeah. a they're like you know science people, but b like they yeah. also uh, are much much much. Like yeah. they see there's an end of the road for them. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, mean, I also like, have to confess, you know, yeah. I went to like a IV program where things were, you know, if they got bad, it would be mostly fine. I think a lot of, it would affect adjuncts, obviously, who are basically paid, you know, shit to do a lot yeah. of really like, you know, valuable work. And also grad students probably at other universities where, you know, you enter the program and you, you know, assume you're going to be a student and then you're like being told to t teach like two classes from the beginning and you have no time to do your own work. And For sure. the design of the system is that you don't actually ever get to do your own work because you're just kind of like permanently stuck teaching. Right, for right, right, right. And so, you know, those are obviously situations where they should advocate for themselves and they should unionize. Um, you know, to be fair, I feel like, you know, in the, in my experience, it was like, there was a sort of like, uh, I don't know not hazing, but sort of like this mentality of like, yeah, yeah. it's rough, but we all go through it. And right. in the end, you'll get a tenure track job, right? And now that is, I think the job market really fell off after I left, like 2015, 2016 or so, mm. at least in my field. And so I think that carrot uh, has disappeared. And so people are like, well, why the fuck are we putting mm. up with this, you know? Yeah, the issue here is that like the universities that can definitely afford to pay everyone way more mm -hmm. generally are not the ones that are going to have very unhappy grad students at, you know, like Stanford could pay their grad students more, but the Stanford grad students are probably pretty well, pretty comfortable, you know, 
Maybe they're not. If you're a Stanford grad student and you're not, then let me know. But I would imagine your conditions are much better than the UCs, right? Yeah. I think that, I mean, what you were saying was kind of interesting, though, I think about the elites, because I was just thinking about like the NLRB cases that have determined whether grad students can unionize. Mm-hmm. And those have like the, 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 key cases over these years that we're talking about were all Ivy League cases, which is kind of right. interesting. Like it went up mm. for Brown, then it was overturned um, by Columbia. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, maybe the, those were, that's somewhat incidental or coincidental. What is, what is the reasoning for why private university faculty don't can't unionize? But There was a decision. I can't remember the name of it. It was interesting because when I was teaching at Cooper Union, Cooper Union is private, but it was sort of grandfathered mm-hmm. into this decision. And okay. so the faculty there actually are unionized. Oh, great. Um, I can't remember the name of the case, but it was sort of on this like professional, the kind of one of the professional exemptions under the National Relations Act. It's just one of these weird things huh. in the constant narrowing of who's eligible under the act. Yeah. Mm. I got to say at the height of COVID, when it just felt like we were being shoved back in the classrooms is when I started. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's yeah. a so she, totally. AUP, I forget what the acronym stands for is like what we have. Association of, yeah. Yeah. Instead of a union is like this advocacy organization. And I got, more act more involved in that thinking like yeah it would be nice if we could that's good collectively push back on right but the flip side of that is that parents got really mad because they were paying tuition for zoom school right you know right but like i kind of think i don't know i feel like a lot of parents and students were actually okay with it it's just the you know the squeakiest wheels maybe i don't know i would have been mad about it you know (laughs) i don't know like why am i what am i paying for you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but i don't know i'm cheap you know i don't <laughs> but frankie would have been home with you which is nice yeah there were certain i think, benefits so. I think that would have been a benefit for me but not for her generally you know? <laughs> yeah like, college like, freshmen stuck, college at, home with freshmen your dad. stuck at home with her <laughs> parents is like not it's yeah. not ideal i don't think all right let's move on to the next topic here for our year in review and let's breeze through these because yeah. uh i think that was a good conversation but tammy you wanted to talk about war all over the world what does this phrase mean <laughs> i just in reflecting on, on 2022 for me um it's the year that i've spent in my adulthood i think like maybe the longest time in korea and you know I, as you guys know i was there mostly reporting on like war stuff, militarism. And I think with the Ukraine war, just observing the ways in which like, like the very wide like reverberations of that war Mm -hmm. have, has been kind of the defining thing in in this year for me. And what I'll say about that, like in terms of Korea is like, so first of all, the Korean (laughs) arms market, Korea like envisions itself as like being now an arms dealer to the world that could potentially overtake Russia and Israel and kind of compete with the United States, which has always been its sponsor and model in this industry. It's it's arms um, industry profits have have gone from seven billion to like 17 billion in the last year. And they're selling a ton of stuff to Poland. And really, what are they selling guns? Oh, no, they, they're selling heavy, they're selling heavy machinery, missiles, tanks, oh, I didn't um, increasingly like fighter jets. Tanks, I mean, the United Alistair's. States kind of has veto power and control over what the right. South Koreans can produce, but they're getting very yeah. close. So anyway, to me, like it's, it's very, it's been very sad and interesting to see how that war has affected so many different parts of the world and the ways that we think about ourselves and what militarism mm-hmm. means. So, you know, like you, you see this in China and Taiwan and in Korea, oh. and you see this in North Africa and the Middle East, all thinking about like, if Russia can do this to Ukraine and NATO reacts in this particular way, what does that mean for me? 
So I think it's a real, you know, it's, it's a really sober and awful time. And um, I'm also was like, I think I sent you guys this article that Jeremy Scahill wrote in the intercept about the defense bill that's pending. And Mm. once again, we have a defense bill that's going to go up through Congress and be totally unopposed by most of both parties and is basically a giveaway to the arms industry and is like way is going to be passed way in excess of what even Biden like wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't really know what to say about all of this. It, it gives me a sense of like hopelessness and, um, and I haven't even gone into kind of like the environmental pieces of that, but I just feel like we're at a point where like the geopolitics are really shifting with all this like cold war stuff that we've talked about on this podcast for the last two and a half years with Russia and China. Um, and we're just in a very, what feels to me like a very, very dangerous. Yeah. What what struck me, I think it was in the scale piece was this comparison between making the case to sell weapons to defend yourself against China and Russia, as opposed to Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and I remember like when I was a college freshman, nine 11 happened and like all, I took like an IR class and the whole discussion was like, how do we adopt this new paradigm of stateless threats and terrorism as this threat you can't, and yeah. that, that throws the whole paradigm of IR, which is founded on the Cold War, that throws that whole paradigm into crisis because it's not states, it's these stateless groups. And now it seems like, well, we're just back to states. And and from this perspective of these weapons salespeople, like they actually are relieved because it is a lot easier to make the case that Russia and China are threats than this nebulous thing called terrorism. Um, right. Yeah, although it's not like the arms industry was suffering under the logic no, of the war on terror, yeah. but yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think like they are comfortable because we're back to a situation where there's like advanced planning and, right. you know, states are trying to kind of, whatever, triangulate themselves against threats, et cetera. And now they're like, okay, we need to have this amount of arms for the next 10 years because of China, Yeah. as opposed to like, okay, the war on terror, it's kind of this shape-shifting right. thing. So it's, yeah, there's a weird sort of like, first as tragedy second as far as kind of are we just kind of going through the motions of what it how, does feel like, and i think i don't know how you guys thought about this when we were like 10 or 20 years ago and obviously <laughs> we were much younger and maybe more idealistic i really i genuinely thought that we would be in a very different place than we are now that we would be in a place where we would be a slightly like states would have slightly less relevance and we would be i know it sounds very kumbaya like tammy 20 year olds mm-hmm. but um it was that way, though. But it feels like so just retrenched to like our childhood in like very scary ways right now. Hmm. Well, our, our childhood in the '90s was like the high point of like one world, like who yeah. I know, freedom. yeah. So I was, and I mean, oh, that was like false, whatever, whatever. But right. we did talk about super statism and international cooperation and all this stuff. So, right. and now here we are. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. that's very depressing. No, it's but that's <laughs> well. I think yeah. what you're describing is like a shift in what the idea, you know, like a limiting out of what can count as like sort of acceptable pragmatic thinking, and that yeah. um, something like a defense bill going through unopposed that's massive that nobody is even talking about. I think yeah, it's evidence that basically it's shifted outside of like things that you can't yeah. really oppose anymore. Um, you know, similar to police budgets now too, mm-hmm. right? Like in two right. years, somehow, like basically no politician is it's willing so to true. breathe a word about demilitarizing police even. Whereas I would say like seven years ago um, that, you know, people really were across, even across the aisle are calling for things like, why do we have these tanks, you know, that mm-hmm. like the, that, that the police have, the like, Ferguson. why do we have these types of 
things. And now nobody would breathe a word about that except for like kind of like people who would be immediately dismissed as being like impractical, like drains on the Democratic Party. Yeah. And so I don't know. I think that the that type of process obviously happens, but it's definitely a retrenchment, you know, from the 90s to now. And I think you're right. Ukraine has accelerated that a bit like the defense budget stuff really has gone by with zero conversation about it all even on the left really you know maybe like ben burgess is mad about it or something but like you know it's not like a broad conversation in the way it would have been even three years ago i think Mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah tammy what did you think of this ft piece you sent us where you said oh right yeah like ukraine war threatens to be another korea in the, in, the, yeah, in the sense so... of a, like, end, endless war, right? <laughs> exactly. This is another, yeah, thing that I was thinking about. And do you guys, I think uh, we might have talked about this briefly on the pod too, but remember also when we were withdrawing from Afghanistan and some people were like, oh, but why don't we just stay and make it like Korea? Like, yeah. I feel like <laughs> yeah. Korea is this really weird touchstone for, yeah, I don't even know what camp it is, but just like forever warists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who are thinking yeah. about all right well, well economic ever, growth people right i guess so yeah but i mean there's that but then also just we're just so used to i think these like the this kind of status quo of like u.s basing strategy abroad that it's it seems somehow okay just to have like these unresolved mm-hmm. half war half peace situations where the yeah. u.s where the u.s military just basically like quote-unquote keeps the peace quote-unquote like spurs economic development like in perpetuity. Yeah. And so the fact that Korea you think that's is true, like, though? A, because like we did leave Afghanistan, you know, like, no, no, I do. I'm just interested in that support for that. Right. Yeah. Even yeah. Though, and yeah. I'm gl- I'm really glad that it went the yeah. way it did. Of course, there are caveats to that, but I guess all I mean <laughs> is it's interesting to me that Korea becomes this kind of like paradigm of like, well, this really worked and is working. Oh yeah. In discussions of Ukraine and discussions of Afghanistan, it's like a sort of model, you know, in some ways of like how to get out of a war without really getting out of a war. Right, right, right. I think that's all based on like people being, but look at their GDP, you know, like right, like that must be the argument. (laughs) And they're now exporting their own arms. Right. And like they have the ultimate achievement. They have their own fleet of electronic vehicles. Have you seen this new uh, Kia that's going to come out next year? It's like a, it's like an EV SUV. It's, I think I did see it. It's yeah, sick. is it? Yeah, yeah. The Hyundai Ioniq Five is amazing, but like this new EV Nine that Kia is putting yeah. out is so sick. There's a bunch of ta- like a lot of the taxis <laughs> anyway. in Korea were all trying to transition to <laughs> e vehicles when I was there, and some of them were so fancy. When I got in, I was like, I don't even oh, know. Care. The dashboard oh, no. looks really crazy. Korea's gonna get there before the U.S. by sh- for sure. You know, yeah. like in terms of like figuring out how to build the grid and everything like that. Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's so small. small yeah, yeah, it's a smaller country, and yeah. they care about stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. and it'll be like you know, pride. Korean pride will be like having the, <laughs> for sure the the most EVs and the best charging network the best howitzers and evs in the world (laughs) exactly (laughs) i mean i think i mean that's a good thing though obviously you know it's better than having five billion cars on the road no the ev part is good yeah yeah i think i think you know this ftp is from gideon rockman i think what it was also hinting at is like at this stage of the ukraine war there's just like no easy way. That, There's no totally. easy victory for one side or the other. Totally, like and the I Korean completely, war, right? Yeah, I appreciate that. Because if the Korean, that. like the Korean War, was really this proxy battle, right, between the two superpowers, the Ukraine could also be seen that way. In which case, neither, 
either Russia is not strong enough to actually win the war and the United States is not that invested in like fallout, you know, of winning the yeah. war on behalf of the Ukraine. It's like, yeah, it's just kind of the sad situation where like Putin, Russia has lost, which I'm just taking their word that that's the case militarily. Yeah. Uh, but he can't admit defeat. And totally. in a lot of ways, it's sort of like, yeah, if you, the Korean war was like, well, both sides just keep going through the same dance over and over. You know, and uh, at the end of the day, it's like neither side is that invested in like winning the entire thing for for their for their side. So they just called the armistice down the middle. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you think it's seen as a? I think it's not seen as a like a an ideal case scenario, but just sort of like a well, maybe this is like the easiest way out to like cut our losses and move on. Yeah, but but what is the then what what is the kind of like peacekeeping or kind yeah. of yeah. resolution mechanism is, to that? It is like constant occupation. And what happens you know? to Ukraine, basically? Yeah, like the Ukrainian I mean, people do they get to decide? Totally, their own fate right. and all that. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <the answer> <laughs> when yeah. did when yeah, did Korea begin having their own arms industry? Um, was that a recent thing or have it's they... been a couple it's been a few decades like it's also like a, this process of after the war the u.s progressively loosening some of its controls over what the south koreans can do technologically okay um but maybe. i would say like it's gotten a lot more attention maybe in the last decade decade and a half and did the u.s help, they've really help them build that industry like teach them yeah. technology yeah right yeah, yeah. obviously yeah. but but also limiting because they don't want to re- them to really be competition so south korea is right. kind of like a second like second tier dealer to the world i would say yeah they're like one of those car dealerships that where they put the big sticker on the front of the car and says 97 (laughs) like that you can buy like a 97 cheaper than the other guy yeah (laughs) almost Um, as good yeah all right well the last thing we were going to talk about this is more a vibe thing maybe i'm wrong but it felt you know i was thinking about the year in review because i have to do it for work and i was like well one of the things that seems to have happened this year is that it, there seems to be like a slight shift in the way that people talk about race and a sort of reduction of some of the ways in which people talk about it, I think. Like in terms of, I think people talk about identity and things less. And that really? like, yeah, I think so. And I think that part of it is because like, you know, during 2020, 2021, obviously it was going to all, it was because of what was happening with the protests, it was going to always be sort of central, but I don't know. It seems like there's just kind of a, again, like a kind of retrenchment in type of ways. In some ways, maybe it's even positive or maybe it's, you know, maybe it can lead to a different type of way of thinking about it. But I just think that stuff like Ibram X. Kendi or all that sort like, it's kind Mm -hmm. of disappeared in a lot of ways. And like, I think that the way in which it exists, is through corporate training or whatever. And that people can say like, that's the real capture. And you know, yeah. people aren't talking about it cause the game is over. And it's like, okay, whatever. Like I don't really care what people are being paid in consulting DEI type of stuff, you know, <laughs> but like um, in terms of the centrality and the way that I think that Americans think about things, I think it's really sort of quickly receded. And I think yeah. that that's probably in some ways very understandable, not understandable, but like very predictable, I would say, yeah. you know, um, that like these moments flare up and then they're quickly beaten down. Hmm. But I don't know what has replaced it anymore, right? That's like, what I was I, just going to ask. Like, I don't think like this whole, like, you know, I don't know. I, I guess the reason why I think about it is because like affirmative action is ending, 
you know, and nobody knows how broad this converse, this thing is going to be. Mm-hmm. It is probably going to be pretty broad, you know, and that all sorts of like crazy scenarios are going to start happening where like any type of like conversation where race is like, for example, Kentaji Brown Jackson, maybe would have been sued you know maybe someone would have sued like i don't even know if you can do that you know but like for biden to say i want to hire a black Hmm. woman as a supreme court justice in a federal role like probably illegal you know and uh and yet it seems to not be a central part of any type of discourse anymore it's almost like people have sort of like capitulated to the fact that this is going to be gone right um now that's very Mm -hmm. separate and much more important than something like you know uh, Ibram X. Kendi or stuff like that, right? But like, it seems to have settled down into this thing where people are general, like a certain type of upper middle class type of person is going to sort of know the right things to say, is going to buy the right children's books and stuff like that, right? And ha- and that like places like private schools are going to do these whole dog and pony shows about diversity and like you know like uh, social justice and stuff like that. Like my friends who do go to send their kids to private schools, like they're every orientation. It starts with like a two hours about that now. Like it's how they open, you know? And so like, it's like the question is really just like, is that what happened? You know, is it like, did everything just settle into these sort of, you know, I don't know for a lot. I don't like this term because I don't like the people who use it, but like, since we use it already, like, is it like, is the end result sort of this PMC type of thing? Because the other thing that we don't talk about (laughs) is people being killed by the police, which is still happening all the time. You know, like children are being killed by the police and nobody seems to blink about it, you know? And like, um, I don't know. It's like, I, it caused me a great deal of anxiety because like, you know, I thought that the, um, I don't, like, I I agree generally with, like, you know, Olafemi Taiwo's, like, idea about elite capture, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? But I didn't think it would be this fast, you know? And, like, I think that there is a way in which you can look at all of this and from one type of clear-eyed perspective and say that, like, man, that happened quickly, right? Like, there is no more street protests when when people are killed by the police, right? Like, I mean, when's the last time you saw something like that yeah. at any sort of large scale? It's not that people stop being killed by the police, right? right? Like it happens at the same exact rate that it always happened, right? Um, there's more, there's, if anything, there's more video evidence now than before, right? Um, uh, like before cell phone videos, you could like, you know, like it's not going to end social media. It's not going to have the same spark, but now like all that infrastructure is still there, Right. And so I so just wonder what happened. So is this because the right has has like made it so toxic off limits or what do you I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I honest I'm baffled by it, you know. Um hmm. I think that maybe part of it has to do with COVID, right? Yeah. Like there's sort of a re- people like sort of retrench their uh general priorities, but then again like the George Floyd movement happened during say, COVID. Yeah. You know? It was so, like the opposite explanation. Right, like that was right. also because of COVID. Yeah, because yeah. of COVID. <laughs> right. And so I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like even, you know, as Asian people, right? Like I feel like this is sort of a high water point for people talking about Asians <laughs> because of hate crime and like all this sort of other yeah. stuff that's going on. And yet I don't know. I think that it's it it also is sort of suffering from the same thing, right? Where like, I just think that like, there's something going on that I can't quite put my finger on, hmm. but it feels like some era is, I don't, I don't mean to go all like sports talky here, but like, you know, it does feel like some sort of 
time period has ended um that and that we don't really know how to talk about this in a new way but Mm -hmm. that like people have started to really reject the older way of discussing these things right like um there should have been in 10 years ago 20 years ago there have been a robust defense of affirmative action every single day you know Mm -hmm. um 10 20 years or three years ago there would be protests in the streets following police killing unarmed black people which is still happening right um that's kind of gone and i don't know what it is like i don't know i don't know what happened you know um now i don't think that it is a question of like a lack of organizing or whatever right because like the infrastructure from 2020 should still be there right maybe it is that the meat these things are happening and that the media has chosen to ignore them that's very possible right but at the same time i don't know if the media really can control like videos going out on social media of people protesting you know um and so uh is there like a retrenchment in the media away from what they would consider to be like quote unquote wokeness absolutely that is happening everywhere you know does that mean that like it should have gone this far this quickly i don't know if it does it just means the media is much more powerful than i think it is you know so like um i don't know what do you guys think about that i'll stop interesting this like rambling explanation i feel like i just composed a column in my head i should just put it through (laughs) otter and send it to my head yeah that's what this podcast is for now (laughs) it's like the testing ground for jay's newsletters um well the one the one kind of cynical explanation that it comes to me is that like the midterms like so part of the elite capture thing is like you know it stuff be like going from public discourse and kind of these spaces of like contestation into like institutional structures. Right. And I think like one thing that does happen around some of this stuff, when it gets so quickly demonized by the right in an election year, like in a time when the democracy also feels like very fragile is like, it does lead to people like us and, you know, media people to be, to shy away from those topics in the way you just described Jay. And so I did wonder whether that has to do with like 2022 versus 2020. Oh yeah. That's possible. Um, But you know, I don't think this, these are necessarily conscious mechanisms, right? Right. I I was thinking about this uh, kind of more from the academic angle, but I think in an analogous way, which is um, I've been reading about the kind of wave of people writing about economic stuff after 2008 Mm -hmm. that became and the kind of parallel to that is like Occupy uh, in like the real world right outside of academia, right? Yeah. And how that, I think both in academia, but outside of academia kind of uh, then became like, you know, capitalism is bad, finance is bad into like capitalism right. is racist. And um, and that kind of merges with mm-hmm. like, you know, the kind of high point of that, I guess, with like 1619, where a lot of this scholarship on capitalism and racism and racial capitalism kind of comes into the present into the public with like the New York times and 1619 and like, uh, you know, you know, Coates's article was earlier. Right. But that idea of like um, black history or black labor as the basis for the U S capitalism, I have to reckon with this kind of reaches a high point at that point. And I think, so I I guess you could even trace this back further to like, if a lot of this rhetoric around the last couple of years about race as a, unequal economic system could be part of a genealogy going back to occupy right then i don't know i guess that does that change the narrative at all if it, if it wasn't just like floyd was the beginning but it actually dates back to 
a lot of the stuff. A sense of like outrage dating back to the 2000s, um, starting with the 08 crisis. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, if we're going to like toss in other factors that kind of grab the headlines this year, I think inflation mattered, you know, not, not necessarily yeah. like the sort of nerdy you know, inflation Twitter stuff, yeah. but just like, you know, people yeah. like gas prices went up to over, you know, $4. Right, right. Feeling stuff. an economic pinch at yeah, which yeah. point, like a sort of noblesse oblige goes out the window. Like yeah. regardless of the people are actually feeling precarity or not, the yeah. sense that like you're feeling some precarity is very powerful. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that that probably, had. Tammy, what do you think? I mean, do you, yeah. do you think that I mean, has this thing happened even like, am I just imagining it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I definitely think what you were saying, I think the the thing that stuck out the most for me in what you were saying was the racialized crime part. Right. I think has definitely, I, oh, I it's yeah. my feeling actually that like people still are talking about kind of race relations and there's a lot of sort of anxiety and tension around like categories of identity, not just in like academic and activist spaces, but like generally in society, but that people don't care as much about like the violence and the stuff that we were talking about in 2020 and that, that, that racialized piece of it really is, is absent from the conversation. Right. But the racialized crime part that is being talked about all the time is the crime waves. Well, that's right? the thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. That, but, but that's, that's on the fear. right. That's I guess I'm just side. sort of limiting exactly. this to like the generally the center left and left. Yeah. No, but I think, I think, but do you think, true. do you think it's exclusively You're, a right wing yeah. concern though? Because I feel like, like Philly, what the crime stuff? Yeah. No, 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 no. But I think that those are, you know, that is, I think private conversations, no, you know, but I think that like from like a large Who's media standpoint, right. yeah. I mean, it's just dominating the headlines in Philly. And I think all sorts yeah. of like liberal left, center right, center left groups are also obsessed with it or talking about it all. Like they were being abandoned and, you know, they're kind of framing it not as, <laughs> not framing it not as like these bad criminals, but framing it as like, why doesn't the state care about us? Uh, so, kind of. you know, like how for like NBA streaming stuff, there's sometimes different ads that they show you. Like that's different you know? than like YouTube ads? Like customized to your yeah, like customized. Yeah, algorithm. Like, yeah. yeah, and they're also like, a, it's from like a different ad pool. It's probably yeah. less oh, you mean on or something on like pass that. Or like the illegal sites? I don't know. Like I'm, on YouTube I, I just, even, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Man, I have seen like 500 ads for the Oakland Police Department. Oh, God. And recruitment ads. Yeah, recruitment yeah. ads. Those would not have been around a couple of years no, ago. Nuts. Let me tell you, you know. Yeah. But they are recruiting hard. And in yeah. one of the ads, and now like the new mayor who is Sheng Tao, who I wrote about, who's like a very left labor supported right. progressive candidate who beat out like the sort of London London breed and like mm. Democratic establishment require, uh, candidate. Mm-hmm. But man, she is so pro-police. <laughs> You wow. know, because she has to be, you know. Yeah. Um, and so uh, one of the Oakland police ads is like, you don't even have to live here to oh like care gosh, about so it. And horrible. I'm like, they are that desperate that they're dropping that shit in an ad? Dang. I thought that was the shit that they told you like when you came in right. the door. That's like, the hey, whisper. By the like, way, yeah. you don't have to live. <laughs> no, it's in the ad. I'm just like, Damn. what? You know, like, do you? And, you know, obviously what's going to happen, right, is that you're going to have uh, like nobody wants to be an Oakland police officer, right? Yeah, um, and so the people who are going to come in are going to be either highly unqualified or they're going to be yahoos from like somewhere mm. else, you know? And the second something bad happens, like, you know, like something bad's going to happen, right? Obviously, because you're setting that up. And then when Jesus. something bad happens, then 
you have to defend why this person is on the police force. Right. right. And like their defense will go, no one wants to be an Oakland Police Department officer. Dang, this is, that is so crazy. Also, we, like the military we, is like this too yeah, right now. We throwing... advertise on every Sacramento Kings NBA stream that we could find. <laughs> we're specifically trying to get people from from that area because they're like we know dudes watch the kings yeah yeah. we wanted kings fans (laughs) oh my god it's not our fault you know um and like that's uh it's uh it's it's interesting how um it's shifted and that I think that's actually part of it. You know, I think that this sort of fear of yeah. crime thing that's happening yeah. I think it's across is thing. also part of the reason why people are a little bit less willing or a little bit more like, I guess, racist than before, you know, and well, that, um, I and think that definitely. A, it has limited out a lot of the conversations that used to happen. Now, some of those conversations, as we pointed out millions of times on this podcast, are not particularly productive, right? right? We yeah, are not right, fans right. of like an Ibram X. Kendi type of standpoint of epistemology type of thing. Right. But man, I don't know. It's good protest when cops kill somebody, right. you know, like and like yeah. like the fact that that's not happening right now is like I don't know. I just find it very con- I just find it concerning. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think you're talking about two different two totally separate things. Am I is that, In what way though? One is like the DEI like selling Kendi and what's her name, D'Angelo books. Right. To, and like instituting committees on DEI within corporations and universities. And the other is like street protests against well i don't think there's so difference in that if there is a general sense of like hesitancy to talk about these types of things or cover them i think the former there's no hesitancy i think it's just been like the horizon was just so low to begin with that once it was incorporated and like they reached their goal of selling books and i'm obviously more cynical selling books and incorporating it within a bureaucracy like then we're done you know as opposed to the other one where like the horizon is you know in theory like much more far away like you can't actually like uh like you said there's always going to be more i guess what i'm really asking is if our colleagues in the media are much shyer about talking (laughs) about race than they were before which i think is true i think the crime stuff is has really been a huge thing over the last two years right especially since most of our colleagues live in cities right yeah Um, for sure and yeah i I mean new york right now feels so weird like on the train it seems like every single station I get stopped at, they make this announcement. Like if you need the NYPD, they are on the platform. Like they've added this to be a regular announcement at almost every station. Right. Yeah. Especially, um, especially if you're an Asian woman. Especially. <laughs> so there's this really <laughs> weird. Like, they, like, going on. they put it at the Asian woman frequency of hearing. Oh, so I other, see. That's what's other going pe- on. If I was sitting next to you, I'd be like, and you'd be like, did you hear that? I'd be like, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was played at the Asian woman frequency. <laughs> They're doing it for you, oh you know. It's for good. It's for it's good. It's really reason. freaking weird here, right now. Yeah, yeah. I, it's weird around here too. Even in Berkeley, people are terrified of crime, you know, because yeah. uh, it has gone up. And um, you know, we usually uh, uh, average zero or one murders a year, and now like three kids from Berkeley High School this year got killed. Whoa. You know, that's crazy. Holy shit. Yeah, I don't like that. Is a lot of kids for like I see like Berkeley. Oh, I have like kids. Yeah, two of them died in one, and then one kid got arrested for like had all these weapons at his or weapon parts at his house, and he was threatening to shoot the school up. And then one kid got shot next to the school, you know, and so they didn't count it as having happened on campus. Oh, it's it's, it's not good, you know. Um, 
But obviously, whenever crime happens, it's going to be racialized in that way. And I wonder, I I do think, Tammy, you're right, that maybe that is sort of the undercurrent towards it more than just like, like, hey, I'm so sick of wokeness and we don't get clicks for our woke pieces anymore, you know, which I think is also part of it, you know, like it reflects a certain public exhaustion about it. But that's why I don't worry about this. We somehow made it through an hour and a half without talking about Elon Musk, but that's why I kind of don't worry Thank about God. this Elon Musk stuff because I'm just like, that's all old shit, you know? Yeah. I know. <laughs> like you're two years behind, bro. You know? Who I mean, cares? yeah, to the extent it was ever like a very cynical ploy to like sell stuff or just get clicks. It's like, well, that stuff is by design going to be replaced by the next thing. You know, like, so it's not actually that surprising that. It yeah, but what's the next thing is my question. I don't know. Yeah. Elon Musk yeah. outrage, SBF outrage, like. Yeah, people being mad at, like, rich people. I guess that's good, but. Like, that's great. I, I hope that. Elon Musk part is just, like, so depressing. It's just, like, I read every installment of the Twitter files and I was just, like. Oh, man. I was, like, you, I how engage. did you miss me? You know, like, I'm the only person in America that cares about this stuff deeply. And I think that you're being ridiculous. You know, like, I was just like, oh, like free, is, pe- like, free speech stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm the one that argues that you're the defender of this position. Yeah. I'm the one that's like tech companies should basically uphold the Constitution. Like, nobody thinks that except me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the only one that actually makes that argument. And like, I'm, I'm even bored by it. You know? <laughs> I was ready. I was like, listen, Matt and Barry, like add me to your little group, you know. I put me in the group chat, you know. I'm ready to I'm ready for my sub stack. I'm you know then I was just like, This is so lame, you know. <laughs> like, come on, like nobody cares about this. Also the stuff like outside of like that guy Yoel Roth, who I guess now is like a fugitive from like the from like the Elon's mob or something like that, where it's just like of course, these people and like, you know, this Vijaya woman who is like the head of legal and whatever, like all that stuff is just cringe, you know, like it's not anything more than I that. I have not followed this at all. Anyway, don't follow it. We'll stop talking yeah. about it there. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. The Morocco game is starting. I must go watch right. in solidarity yes. with people. And so thank you for listening to our show. Andy, thanks for coming yeah. on. Since yeah, it's yeah, wonderful to talk to you every single time. Congratulations to both of you guys on the new kids and happy yeah. new year. Well, it hasn't happened yet, so let's well, not jinx almost. it. But Happy holidays. Um, happy winter yeah, happy vacation. If you'd like to support the show, it's uh, goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. Um, you'll get access to all sorts of things, including bonus episodes and our discord server where people have lively conversations um as i said at the beginning of the show i will be on some form of paternity leave from the show but it will not be as long as my paternity leave from other things uh, other engagements and so i should be back pretty soon like you know this is still as i told many of you at the event talking to tammy and other people is something that i quite enjoy and so taking an hour here and there is really not that big of a deal for me and so uh, but until then, Tammy will be holding it down. Um, we might miss a week or so, but we're not going to miss too much more than that. Right, Tammy? Yeah. I think that's that wasn't right. a threatening right, Tammy. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, man, I guess I got to stay busy. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, till next time, go Morocco. Bye. Woo.